Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor, where those who think outside the box can create unique football bets from a combination of markets. Create your best bet with the innovative BetVictor Bet Builder. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hi, my name is Jonna, and I play football for Chelsea FC and for the Swedish national team. And you are listening to the Blue Day podcast. Fellow Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast, we are delighted to welcome this individual on the show today. He is an award-winning author and one of the best journalists in the game. Here is Harry Harris. Harry, welcome to the Blue Day podcast. How are you? Oh, great. All the better to see you and talking about Chelsea. One of my favourite subjects. (laughs) Brilliant. I thought you might say that. Um, (laughs) Well, I'd like to go all the way back, if I can, right right from the very beginning. Um, Harry, what made you decide to become a journalist in the first place? Oh, blimey, you're testing my memory now. Um, (laughs) Let me think. Well, I actually um, wanted to be a professional footballer. I should imagine all all kids of my age did. Um, Wasn't very good, actually. Crap, in fact. So... um, uh, next best thing I thought was uh, writing about it and um, you know, sent a few letters to the local paper, did little uh, items and photographs of school sports days and open days, etc. And popped into the, in those days, no social media, no smartphone. So you have to walk the thing into the local branch office. Um, and it was almost like I, I did that so often that... Um, it reached a stage where it was almost like I was walking in. I could have sat down and had a, sat down by a desk anyway. No one would have noticed and started work. Um, so um, I, I could have gone to university, but uh, I, I had a, a an offer from that local paper group, um, and they they took me uh, to um, a block release course at Harlow College uh, for three months at a time for two years. And um, I thought that was a better option, you know, and uh, just ended up walking into that local little office and, and started work there. Brilliant. And it's so well, it wouldn't happen these days, though. It wouldn't happen these days. <laughs> no, I was, I was going to say, I think you'd probably have to have a degree or you'd have to sort of, you know, know, know people within the profession, I guess, and work your way up from there. It wouldn't be as simple as, obviously, what happened all, all them years ago. Yeah, well, if I was asked, you know, every time I'm asked about how do you get into this profession, really, I think uh, I should actually write a book about it. Um, 
it, it might be a good handbook to uh, publish, but uh, I can't imagine anyone wanting to publish it, but you never know. You never know. You never know indeed. Um, as, as again, you sort of said to when you, you was younger, what team did you follow as a youngster and who was your favourite player growing up? Well, I've always been a Spurs fan. Mm. Uh, and uh, when I moved here, I, I, I wanted to call the house The Lane. But my wife's a big Chelsea fan, so it's called The Bridge. <laughs> That's a good compromise. <laughs> so after writing about 20 Spurs books, my wife said, oh, I've had enough of reading all that row of old rubbish. Can you write some Chelsea books? So I started about 20 Chelsea books later. I'm still writing Chelsea books, so there you go. <laughs> Well, that's one of the reasons why we've got you on the show is to sort of obviously go through some of them, not all of them for, for today, but just go through. There's some quite significant ones for me personally that I wanted to sort of discuss with you today and just sort of get sort of dissect your, obviously your memories from them. Um, there was one particular book that, again, meant a great deal for me personally when that started off with the Chelsea Revolution. Uh, the explosive inside story of the amazing new Chelsea FC. It was uh, released in 2003. Am I right in saying, Mr. Harris? God, blimey. You can call me Harry, and yes, it probably was. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Firstly, I just, w- I just would like to sort of say, you know, did you have fun in writing this? And what were your thoughts on, obviously, what how Chelsea was transformed at the time? Well, going back to... to, to... 2003, good grief. Well, I, I, at that time, uh, I was still living in Chelsea. Um, I actually lived uh, uh, in Elm Park Gardens, uh, walking distance from the bridge. Um, and uh, well, my wife and I, my wife's a journalist as well, we knew Kevin Bates very well um, and his new partner at the time, Susanna. Uh, and we often you know, uh, went out with them dine with them, um, inundated with Chelsea fans. We could never have a peaceful meal when Ken was around. He, he was loved by the, the fan base at the time. So clearly, um, when he sold the club, I really had much more of the inside track than any other journalist who probably lived through the takeover uh, and every, had every nuance of it. So uh, writing how it came about... Um, was probably the easiest thing I could have done. What was Ken Bates like as a person? Obviously, if, if people obviously had this perception of him, obviously through the media, but the fact that you knew him personally, what was he like? Well, I think we could do a whole podcast just on that question alone. <laughs> that give me the idea, because that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to suffice to say that, you know, we, we uh, ended up very, very close friends, then fell out. And then became close friends again. And in fact, I could show you. I've actually he, he presented it to me. You know, I was banned by by Ken Bates. I was aware, yes. Yeah, because I, I, I did a, you know, a lot of investigative journalism at the Daily Mirror, mm. and um, fell upon this story about all the dodgy deals that he did when he signed all the players um, and then their house purchases and all this sort of stuff. Um, and um, uh, I was photographed in the Daily Mirror locked out of the ground, you know, trying to get back in. It was, they thought it was funny. I didn't, but there you go. Um, but we, we uh, fell back in again. And um, during that, I think it was probably about 18 months I was barred from going to Stamford Bridge. Um, he, he put up this sign called Harry's Bar 
in the media toilet. Um, and when when uh, he allowed me back in, first game of the season, <clears throat> I wondered what, what was going on because everyone went quiet when I went into the press room. And, and Ken Bates was in there and he made a big speech and handed me the uh, the uh, placard, <laughs> which I still have. I mean, I can show it to you. Hold on. Oh, okay. brilliant. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a collector's that, that was hanging in the uh, <laughs> restroom toilet for 18 months. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, I'll tell you what, although obviously, again, people's perceptions and what, what you hear through stories, but he seemed like a guy who, you know, yes, had a couple of grudges, but he had a sense of humour as well. Okay, <laughs> a wicked sense of humour. Uh, but yes, he did bear grudges. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, can't, I can imagine. Um, um, I've got a new Chelsea book out called The Boss. I did a boss series of um, three or four clubs. Uh, and the Chelsea one in particular is um, uh, about a uh, history of all their managers all the way through to Frank Lampard. Mm. Uh, and Frank, uh, I've known very well for a long period of time. He, I called him and he did a forward for the book for me. Uh, Glenn Holland did... Um, uh, a forward as well um, and it was very sad to see Frank go because I, uh, in that forward he said how much um, he, he uh, had put at risk his reputation as a player um, although I, I think it was no risk personally because I think that reputation as a player will always stand but he was very very keen to uh, replicate what he did as a player as a manager uh, and I think given a bit more time he would have probably have done that yeah, I agree. I will work with his um, forward to the book, uh, and it's a, a history of the managers from Ted Drake through to Frank. Uh, and we've just updated it with a chapter on the new guy, TT. Um, okay. And uh, um, we've got a few pages at the end for the next one when he comes in very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the next manager after that in about 12 months' time, probably. <laughs> The, the, the way Chelsea are. Um, but I do urge sort of the Chelsea fans who wants to know the inside story of Roman Abramovich and how that particular event occurred in 2003 when he bought the club and all, again, sort of the, the rift of players that sort of came in. It's not just about that, but it's also Roman's love for football as, as well as, and obviously his intent to own a, a football club. So I personally think it's a fantastic read. So I do urge our followers to look at that book. But there are many you've got, quotes... You've got to point in... out, I think, I've got, I think you've got to point out to the Chelsea fans who are listening, um, that th- th- these have become rare classics. Yes. You know, they, they all sold out. Um, they're all bestsellers. They sold out. And it would cost you a small fortune to get your hands on one now. That is true. Harry, one particular quote that came out of the book that intrigued me while I was doing the research was Roman Abramovich obviously made obviously a few sort of comments after buying Chelsea. I just want to sort of get your thoughts on this particular quote. It's said in a quote, the English word fun sums it up for me. It is not about business. I see it as a very long-term commitment. I haven't thought about much money I'm prepared to spend. I suppose that depends on how well we play and how determined we are to win. If I feel we need to buy any particular player to get the results we want, I'll just spend more money, end quote. 
in your opinion, based on how he saw that back in 2003, do you think he still applies that today based on what we've seen sort of, well, quite recently in regards to if he wants to succeed, he'll spend whatever money is possible. And that includes compensation for coaches and um, I, I think his attitude has changed quite considerably since t- to that comment 2003. Um, but in a way, it hasn't changed. I, I, I think um, he's learned an awful lot about the uh, industry in, in that long period of time. Mm-hmm. And if you, <clears throat> and obviously you have read the book, you know, there was a lot of um, fans' concerns about how long his interest would last. Would it be a passing fad and he'd move on to something else because he had all all other interests in different sports, Formula One, in the arts, in the theatre, and he had invested big in in, in different areas of uh, uh, sports and entertainment. Uh, How long would it last? They said, you know, if he doesn't keep winning, he'll grow tired and move on, sell up, and we'll be back to square one. And here we are all these years later and none of that's happened. And uh, I never saw that happening back then, I must say, as you you would find in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when he first came in, he was throwing money at it in in all directions because he needed all these players. So he was overpaying vast amounts. And I think um, uh, Torres was the turning point. And, you know, in in a rush, they spent £50 million on the centre forward Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the winter transfer window. And I don't think he particularly wanted to carry on that way. But then you find he spends a world record on a goalkeeper out of the blue, which goes contrary to what he's learned over all these years. You know, it it isn't how much you're spending. It's the quality of the player and the manager and how he's going to develop. You need a good manager to buy the right kind of players. Hmm. And um, he's never settled on any manager. Uh, you see, Frank was the first non-foreign coach he'd ever uh, yes. selected. And yes. um, from my inside track, what goes on in the boardroom there, he, he's always had a, um, a suspicion that the foreign coach was the better one. And that's why he's never actually appointed in any English uh, managers. Um, and if you have to look back, when was the last one that ever won um, the title in this country? All the way back to Howard Wilkinson. That's right, for Leeds United, wasn't it? Yeah, so yes. he's never really believed, and you look at the stats, that a, an English coach would be successful. So he's never appointed one. I think Frank was the exception, and he really wanted him to succeed. But I think really, even at the initial point of his uh, arrival as a manager, deep down he thought, uh, probably won't succeed. Um, and that's why I don't think he gave him sufficient time. Do you think that Chelsea was trying to appease the fans by appointing Frank or did they actually feel that Frank was the right man for the job? Because I remember with Chelsea getting rid of Sari, a lot of fans didn't like him, me me included in that. And obviously the tide was turning a little bit. The fans were getting a little bit grumpy, a little bit agitated with the way Chelsea were with getting rid of managers, you know, season in, season out. You know, first it was Conte, then Sari. Do you think, looking back now, obviously with what's happened recently, that they looked at Frank's sort of job at Derby? Okay, he didn't, he didn't do brilliantly. He got them to the playoff final, but he didn't get promoted. But do you feel because of the name recognition 
they wanted to get the fans back on side and get Frank in and maybe see see where it goes from there? Uh, I don't think either of those were, were um, the motivation. I don't think he really is all that bothered about getting the fans on side. You know, you would like the fans on side. He is a fan. He wants to be on side with the fans and he, 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 everything he does is not to get them on side, but it's the whole embracing thing. You know, the fans, the club, the owner, he sees it all as one. You know, it should all be as one. And he, he feels that the fans should be with him, that they should understand that he's trying to do things for the best for the club. Um, so why did he pick Frank at that particular time? It's because I think he probably couldn't hire Mourinho for a third time. Um, and, you know, the best coaches in the world were already placed in English clubs. You know, he'd missed out on Klopp. He'd missed out on Guardiola. He should have appointed Guardiola when he had the chance. Um, he, he booked at the kind of money that the manager was asking. But then uh, managers, coaches' fees then spiralled out of control soon after that anyway. Hmm. Um, so where do you go? You know, the, the best managers are at Liverpool and they are at Manchester City. Yeah. So it was, again, potluck with another foreign coach. And people were saying, look, Frank has got it in him and, and probably has, probably did. Um, and he went against his better judgment, I think. Right. I think with, obviously with what's happened, and as you say, Frank was given a task. And the fact that he, he sort of was managing with two hands tied behind his back, really, because he, he had, Hazard left for Real Madrid. So he was missing arguably the best player in the league. Mm. He obviously had to go with a transfer embargo, which wasn't sort of, Frank's fault it would that was down to the business of the club so he, he had no choice but to then bring in the youth the likes of James Mount Tammy I think I think you've hit on probably the reason why he it, it swung it towards Frank because you know if you do go and find the best available at that particular time even though it would probably third and fourth best in the world um if you do go and get the best that's available, the guy wants to come in and spend money on his new players or get his own team together. I, said, I think they, they saw uh, Frank uh, and uh, the assistance he had with him uh, as a link to the academy and the only option to bring on the kids. And as we know, Chelsea produce a vast quantity of high-quality kids who never ever get a chance in the first team. Yeah. And all they do is move around Europe. Um, so it's almost what's the point of the, of the academy at Chelsea um, in developing such talent, but never using it or utilising it. And here was a, an opportunity because it was thrust upon them. And here was a young man who had links to the academy. Come, you know, um, uh, his, his backroom team had links to the academy. They worked with the academy. It made a little bit of sense to go down that route under the circumstances. Mm. And he didn't do very badly in his first year, given those circumstances. He did fantastic the first season because he had to integrate, as you say, the the youth players that have not played for Chelsea before, you know, and even the ones that were on loan have come back. He had to gel them all together, knowing that he weren't able to bring in his own sort of players technically. And that was his downfall, you know. Mm. When, the, when the ban was lifted and they spent a quarter of a billion pounds... 
you had a very inexperienced coach dealing with so many high profile, big money signings, all in one go, where the expectancy is not to have time to, to, to find the right formation and get them all to gel, is to hit the ground running and win the league. Because you don't spend a quarter of a billion pound um, w- without expecting a return. And what happened was, it was worse than it was when he hadn't spent a penny. Yeah. And, and, and some of the best players that he bought, so-called best players, well, one or two had problems with COVID, etc. But um, I think Timo Werner is, is the pointing case. Yeah. He arrives for an astronomical sum of money, only 60 million quid, um, with a great reputation, a great goal scorer for his country as well as his club. And Liverpool wanted him. Um, and you, you have to question why they didn't actually take him or why he didn't go to Liverpool. Um, and there he is. Good start, reasonably good start, and then a massive barren spell, and he just seems a lost soul out of place within the structure of the team. Um, mm. And the theory is, well, let's get a German-speaking German coach in and sort out the German signings. You know, yeah. um, it, it, it's lurching from one idea to another without giving anyone any time to actually sort something out. Now, I've said this on previous episodes of the podcast, and I've said this to, to, to people uh, personally, but I see this as going back to what they did with Benitez. When they hired Benitez in, there was rumours going around that the reason why he brought in Benitez wasn't because of his dealings as a coach, but it was because we had a, as you said before, a £15 million player that wasn't scoring. Why not bring in the coach that brought him to the country, that made him the player that he was, put two and two together and see what comes up. For me, that looked very similar to what they've done with Thomas Tuchel now. He's brought in a German coach, a German-speaking coach who knows about Werner, knows about Havertz, and tries to get them to gel to become better players. That, for, that's why I sort of see it as quite familiar. Yeah, and indeed, when you, when you see these first two signings, they'll be Germans. <laughs> well, they've German. been linked. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, most definitely. When you going all the way back, and you know, again, you've you know, you've you've done your sort of research on Chelsea. You've 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 looked at Chelsea from all the way back from Ken Bates to Roman, and this issue with Roman buying players while managers prefer maybe so somebody else. You know, I look back maybe when Roman first brought in the likes of Shevchenko. There was obviously rumours and murmurs going around that Mourinho wasn't sort of a fan of Shevchenko. He didn't ideally want Shevchenko, but Roman was a fan of the player. Do you think that with everything that's gone on, obviously again recently with Lampard, and there's rumours that Lampard only wanted Ben Chilwell out of all the signings that were made, he only wanted Ben Chilwell, he didn't want all the others. Do you feel this model of owner wants player so he'll get him? Do you feel that that has been a detriment to why certain managers have come and gone at Chelsea and why maybe there is no long-term stability? Yeah, I think that's almost an impossible question to answer because um, you know, the, the, the way things work, the dynamics of signing players is, is not so simple. You, mm-hmm. you know, the manager can't say, uh, oh, I want Man Pepe at uh, PSG. That, that's top of my list. And I'm not going to give you a number two or number three because that's the only one I want. And you go off and you offer 200 million and they still refuse to sell it. Mm. 
then you find someone else, even if you have, even if the manager hasn't put two or three uh, as, the, as the backup ones, you, you're giving one. Um, so it's um, it's not easy to 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 uh, sort that that one out. Uh, and um, the only the only uh, the only thing is you've got to throw back to say Alex Ferguson's days and the managers preceding him and up to him. Um, they chose all the players. They rang up their, their counterpart, the other manager, mm. uh, and they, they, they did a deal with the other manager. That's how yeah. it worked in the, in the old days. So the manager picked who he wanted. Mm. <clears throat> and and he, he would get in his car and he'd go up and around the country and he'd watch the player, you know. <laughs> but now you don't have to go anywhere because every single game's on TV. Yeah. And you get videos and, and uh, players are bought by um, the data expert within the mm. club who's done all the stats. Um, so who knows why they buy a player these days or who picks them? Um, it's almost impossible to tell. Have you got any crazy stories to tell about managers that have gone sort of quite far up to try and bring in a player for, for their club? You know, because uh, again, I've heard sort of stories about managers travelling hundreds of miles in their cars to try and persuade a player not to go to one club and to sign for them. And again, whether or not it's, it's happened last 20 years, is there any sort of stories that you can sort of maybe share with us about managers, again, taking other managers out for dinner and saying, oh, by the way, that player that isn't playing for you, can we have him sort of figures? Well, um, the, 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 you, you, you have in, in, in recent times come into the, uh, the sphere of the super agents, you know, these guys who control so much of the transfers these days anyway. Um, but um, I'm actually writing a book about uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, it's a bit of an epic. It's a long, long book because he's 80 this year. And there, there's numerous stories in there uh, about exactly what you're saying. And they're, they're pretty long and there are lots of them. Uh, and they're quite fascinating. So uh, that's one to look out for. It involves one or two Chelsea players as well. Um Obviously, 2003, Chelsea brought in a whole host of players and there was, you know, thousands of newspaper articles that summer and even beyond about Chelsea being linked with certain players. Do you know anyone's, any particular players that nearly signed for Chelsea, but for whatever reason didn't, other than the ones that obviously signed in 2003? Um, I think think that's... um... Uh, difficult to say because, uh, as we've been discussing, you know, there's a, there's a long list of um, uh, potential signings. There's a long list of um, speculation in the newspapers and the media. Uh, it, it's really so much is so close anyway because the agents have so much of an input these days, and and, and the owners and the people who are dealing with the money and um, directors of football we have. You know, we. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abramovich tried that, didn't the uh, director of football uh, at Chelsea, to be that kind of buffer between, you know, the owner just saying, I I like the look of that player, and so we get them, which is not quite the case, Mm. but uh, Mm. not far from it as well in certain aspects. You know, you mentioned Shevchenko. I think that's quite interesting because I think if you're looking at, say, people like Frank Lampard, John Terry and Shevchenko, uh, ideally, he would like Shevchenko to be his future manager. Yeah. So I, I think that um, that may well be the next step. You never know. Can you see that then? Maybe not I after have, two. Uh, 
Yeah, again, uh, you know, uh, uh, obviously John Terry would fancy it, wouldn't he? Uh, but I think it's more likely if he's going to go for someone uh, like that, it would be Shevchenko. Interesting, because he's the Ukrainian national manager as well, isn't he, at the moment, Shevchenko? Yeah. So, Gaining some experience. Yes, um, yes, exactly. Uh, um yeah. One of the bits out of the Abramovich Chelsea diary that obviously came out around about the same time, 2003, 2004, there was one bit that I wanted to sort of discuss with you in entirety. And that was the details of Chelsea signing Ian Robin from under Manchester United's noses. Not sure if you sort of specifically remember that, but it was a signing that really as a Chelsea fan went under the radar of a few because not many people knew who Iron Robin was on the global scale of things. But I see in the book, it sort of mentions that United, the United officials gave the player a tour of Old Trafford. And a few weeks later, obviously, they, United find out he signs for Chelsea. This is something that happens with a lot of clubs sort of within the last five, ten years now, isn't it? That a certain club will look at a player and then another club will come in under the noses because it's quite similar to William with what happened with him, that Tottenham were linked with him and they were close to signing and all of a sudden Chelsea sort of hijacked the deal, so to speak. Does, do you think that still happens nowadays with clubs or is it more... Yeah, I'm, sure, yeah, I'm sure it does. Yeah, of course mm. it does. I mean, my, my favourite one is uh, Manuel Petit. Do you remember that one? Yes. When he, um, uh, he was signing... Um, Spurs, and he went down there, they agreed terms and everything else, and then he asked the club if they could get him a taxi, and they, they ordered the taxi, got in the taxi, and went down to went down, you know, a couple of miles down the road and signed there. <laughs> I, I, I remember that. I remember there was a, an interview that Alan Sugar did, because um, I believe he was the Tottenham chairman at the time, was, I think yeah. he might have been, yeah. And, and, the manager, yeah. That, yeah, and Sugar was fuming. I, I yeah. sort of seem to remember. He, he paid a taxi for him to go and sign up for Arsenal. Yeah, he wasn't very happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I could just sort of see whereby, you know, clubs do have not underhanded tactics and sort of things, but it's just, just a case of they will do whatever it takes to get the, that player through the doors. Yeah, I mean, mm. Um, mm. <clears throat> I, I was just uh, interviewing Paul Parker for this uh, Ferguson book and he was telling a very funny story about... Um, you know, he was a Spurs Spurs supporter as a, as a boy and he would love to have played for Spurs. He was leaving QPR and he met Terry Venables and he, and he, was, he, he thought he was going to sign for Spurs. But then um, Man United rang him up and took him up to Manchester Old Trafford and signed him that day. Oh, um, so it happens all the time, you know. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's interesting, retrospectively, when you were writing books like histories of what, what went on, you actually find out that the, the, the nuts and bolts and the truth of exactly what happened. It's, it's, it's really interesting to go through that, you know, mm. because at the time it's just like, oh, we, the team was going to sign for, for uh, Spurs. Well, no, we signed for Arsenal. You don't know anything none the wiser. Uh, but it's only, you know, years afterwards when everyone writes their books about it or you find out how hilarious some of these episodes are. Well, funny you should sort of mention that because on... In one of the books, it has a name that Chelsea were linked with. And he, I, think, I believe it's even in the book that Chelsea were actually preparing a bid, but nothing sort of came from it. And it was, they were linked with a certain central defender that obviously now we know has become a Premier League icon in Vincent Company. 
they were linked with him when he was at Anderlecht. And I just found that fascinating to sort of read it back on the research all these years later, knowing that it was in the book back in 2003. And this same Vincent company has gone on to win Premier League titles, but, you know, will probably have a statue outside Manchester City. I just found it fascinating that, you know, again, Chelsea back in 2003, 2004 were saying, I oh, will buy the very best. But deep down, they were actually trying to bring in future talent. They were trying to bring in, you know, stars of probably the present. You know, the likes, there were stories about Chelsea trying to bring in Lionel Messi a few times. You know, a couple of them have come out. I think there was even a picture of Mbappé with a Chelsea shirt when he was a kid saying, I've just visited the stadium. Indeed. I mean, they they, they littered with all of these. Um, And they're all true, you know. It's uh, it's, it's only obviously when you pick up a book like that from 2003 and read it, go, my God, did they really? (laughs) Yeah. Of course they did. Um, But they wouldn't have had any idea how well he did. No, of course. uh, so it, you know it's, it's fascinating to read these books and the, 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 once you do it's surprising how fresh they are but as I warned your listeners you're not going to get your hands on them <laughs> unless you're going to pay a small fortune unless you want to pay a small fortune um, probably something that has probably sort of cost a small, a small fortune back in 2004 um, Harry I'm not sure if you do remember this particular game I do because it was near my birthday but it was Monaco Chelsea Champions League Semi-final, first leg. Obviously, in the books, it's obviously got it in detail of the build-up to it. It's got the detail of the, the the match itself. It's got, obviously, the match description. It's obviously got the aftermath. So, again, if people who, who in fact, may have the book, I do urge you to go back and read it because, it, you know, looking back now, it still fascinates me to this day. Do you remember that particular game and the fallout? Because the one thing that sort of, people seem to have forgotten at that point was the amount of pressure that Claudio Ranieri was on and the amount of maybe stick he got, the criticism he he, he got with, obviously, with the substitutions he made yeah. and the people... Well, you might, was... you might. I don't know, but you can see it. There's a, there's a picture there. Over my shoulder, can you see it? There it is. On yes. me and Claudio. Yes, I see it there, Yes. <laughs> That's so, a, yes, that's a great picture. Yeah. Um, so you can see it there. Yeah. There it is. That yes. Um, so yes, I do. I was there at the game. Um, you know, I, I, it, it was very hard for Claudio to to talk about it. I mean, he had limited uh, capacity with his English. It wasn't bad, but we enjoyed you know listening to him. Um, but uh, I was very close to an Italian journalist at that time. Who knew Claudio exceedingly well, um, and able to translate for me really his innermost thoughts about it at the time. And they were pretty dark because he had become aware um, of the fact that um, uh, Bramovich had uh, entertained uh, Mourinho on his yacht and offered him his job. Was this? And, oh, sorry, Harry. Was this? Before the game in the Champions yeah. League, or was this subsequently yeah. after? No, it was before the game. Oh, it was before the game. Before the game, and Ranieri found out about it. And the uh, the problem really was, is that the feeling was that it, it affected his judgment in that game. And 
Uh, Chelsea had the beating of Monaco, certainly over the two legs, and should have easily come through that game. But he made a number of changes at half-time, which were pretty erratic. And the team fell apart in the second half. Um, And I I don't think even to this day people really appreciate um, that intensity of pressure he felt in in needing to win that game. He, He wanted to win the Champions League, to say, why are you getting rid of me? I'm as good as anybody. Because I remember the game sort of quite well. I was going back on research and I was having a look on YouTube and Monaco were down to 10 men as well in that game, which a lot of people will sort of quite forget. It should have been quite an easy yeah. ask to go through. And that's, that's why he thought, well, I just need to make all these changes to make sure we go through. That's and right. He didn't need to make them at all. He just panicked. Yes, that's right. Because, you know, he put the you know Robert Hoof on you know, right back, and then he would put sort of, you know, Hasselbank in midfield and these sort of changes. Yes. Yes. And And I think obviously when Monaco scored the second goal, you was probably thinking, okay, it's still 2-1. We've got the away goal. If all else fails, we'll lose this one, but we can get them back at the bridge and win. But then obviously when the third goal went in, yeah, I remember as a teenager watching the game and I've, I was sort of flabbergasted thinking, what's going on here? You know, Monaco are 10 men. We've got the better squad. And again, I've said, I remember obviously the day after people were lambasting Ranieri saying he's lost a plot. And do you think that that, uh, that game, he was doomed from that point? Um, well, we had lost the plot, that's for sure. <laughs> um, oh, I, I think... Um... I think Abramovich was still troubled by what he should do. Um, he, he made up his mind to appoint Mourinho, um, but he was troubled that it, 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 it leaked out. He was troubled that maybe Ranieri was affected in those games. Um, and uh, bizarrely, he called Ranieri in to see him when the season finished to discuss potential signings for next season. So the thought was either he was still dithering about whether to, to sack him and bring in Mourinho or he was just picking his brains to see what, what he had in mind and to see whether that's what he should do before Mourinho arrived. Because I remember before Christmas, there was around September, October, we was even linked with Sven Goran Eriksson coming in as manager while Ranieri was in charge. And Ranieri was being asked week in, week out, Oh, Sven's been linked with your job. How do you feel about it? And you know, was there again? I've I've got me doubts whether these stories were potentially. But was there any sort of truth in the rumours that Roman actually spoke to Sven and was trying to tempt him away from the England job to come to Chelsea? I do. <laughs> it was pretty. Um, it was pretty full on on the discussions between Ericsson and Chelsea. Um, but of course, it was pretty full on at the same time with Ericsson going to Manchester United. So er- Ericsson was um, the first foreign English coach and was never comfortable with that. He was never welcomed as that. Um, and uh, he-, he was obviously uh, well in demand at that point in time. And, and he was one of these... Um, 
guys that was always looking for the for the for the next chance, the big chance, and the bigger chance, and the bigger picture. And he felt um, the day to day running of a big, massive club like Manchester United or Chelsea was the path to take. And of course, you know the um, the salary for an English coach at that particular time compared to what was going on in, in, in the big clubs and, and the way those salaries were, were, don't get me wrong, he negotiated the biggest ever salary for an English coach, but it was still much smaller than he would get at Chelsea or Manchester United. So um, uh, his agent was Pini Zahavi at the time. That's right, Pini Zahavi, yeah. He was very close to, to Roman. Uh, um, and very, very much uh, in favour of Manchester United, but very strongly linked to Sir Alex. And for me, and as you're reading my Alex Ferguson book, I think it was uh, the the realisation that uh, Ericsson had actually signed a contract to take over from him, but um, changed his mind and the reason why he, he ditched his first decision to retire. That's right, Aaron, yeah. I remember that. That's, that's fascinating. In regards to the books itself, what was the reaction you got from your peers and from sort of you know, fans alike? What was sort of like the feedback you received? Either, you know, again, probably from Chelsea itself. What was the sort of the reaction you got? What, from writing these books? Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I think I've got a very good, strong, favourable reaction from Chelsea fans. I think mean, they like them. <laughs> mm. Mm. They seem to buy them. <laughs> yes, well, which is why you can't buy them now. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, the current one, you know, um, uh, the inside track of all these managers, most of which I've known personally, uh, from Ted Drake to, to Frank, um, you know, uh, it, it was published over a year ago and it's still selling strong. It still mm. gets... Mm. from time to time to number one best-selling Chelsea books. Um, and very shortly, it will be like with the other ones. It, yes. So I hope you get yours for your birthday, because yes. there aren't going to be many left. <laughs> I will definitely make sure I've, I've got one. One book I do want to talk about, um, we're sort of going to fast-track now a little bit, is um, this book is, for me, steeped in Chelsea's history from... 1905 to 2005 and it's called Chelsea's Century and the book contains insights recollections of Chelsea's past which includes interviews from Chelsea legends and I'm not using that word likely the like you know what are your memories when you came to writing this book and how fun was it to sort of discuss about people like Ray Wilkins Glenn Hoddle pay people as well like Tommy Doherty, who unfortunately we recently um, lost as well. You know, what sort of fun memories did you have of that particular book? Well, I mean, I've got to say, all these books are fun because it's, um, you know, uh, it's almost like a ridiculous thing to say, but, um, and my wife always gives me a lot of stick about this, but my work is my hobby, you know. it's it's mm. if, you, if you love football and like football, follow it. Um, but also, well, I couldn't really work it out when I was very young. But they actually pay you to do this job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I, I know all these guys, you know, from a personal point of view, see them quite regularly. So it, it is fun just to chat over old times, you know. And, you know, sometimes they're reluctant to want to do it. But often when 
when you get sit them down or talk to them, whatever, you know, hours later, you can you have to try and get rid of them because you know yes. they won't stop. <laughs> you know, they, they they like talking about it, so uh, and I enjoy listening. One name that is again steeped in Chelsea's history that a lot of people, you know, every, every sort of time it's mentioned, would love to hear about him is Matthew Harding. What was your sort of dealings with Matthew Harding as a journalist did you get on with him did he sort of you know have sort of stories to tell you and what was sort of the um relationship like on that front fascinating really because um at that point you know uh, I was back in favor with uh, old uncle Ken uh, and he was <laughs> daggers drawn with Matthew uh, mm. <clears throat> so uh, I had Matthew on talking about, you know, what, why I should be supporting him. <clears throat> and I had the ins and outs, why I shouldn't, from Ken. So it was really oh. so, so yeah. you So you were stuck in the middle, basically, then? Well, not really, no. I mean, uh, <laughs> my job is to, to gather this information and publish it in the Daily Mirror, which, which I did with great glee. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, again, we've, sort of, yeah, we've lost, you know, or too, too many of these legends, really, but the likes of Peter Bernetti and Ray Wilkins again, they 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 would have had sort of stories that would probably last days in regards to writing and sort of you know a correlating. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Peter Osgood, I probably saw him a couple of weeks before he died, and he came came round to see me. We had a long chat, coffee, and, and Peter Bernetti, I've so seen, seen him regularly. Uh, and now we've got the, the um, you know, Paul Cannaville's in hospital having yes. a, a problem. Um, Ray Wilkins, of course, you know, uh, knew him very well. Uh, Tommy Doherty as well, you know, mm. what fun he was talking to him. It was a laugh a minute. Uh, what was he like? Oh, just, 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 just such fun to be with, you know. He, he was great company. Um, mm. Tell a million jokes and... Uh, but if you, if you got down to the serious sides, talk about football, the stories he would tell tell me, fascinating. So uh, I obviously interviewed him for the uh, the book about the history of managers, um, and, and that was hugely enjoyable. And I was so pleased that I did. Mm. Um, anyway, look, you know, it, it, it's uh, it, it's a, a privilege to be able to talk to these guys and, and to to you know, to write these books, it's great, great fun. The the one thing that I thought I got from that particular book, The Chelsea Centuries, was the amount of characters that have sort of come through, you know, the club and even sort of just come through the the whole sport of football. Do you think sort of the the type of characters has has changed to the point where, you know, you don't get that particular player anymore, like the maverick type that you know, after a game, we'll go to a pub and sort of have a couple and then sort of go home. And, you know, the players that like to have a laugh and sort of more, you know, more freestyle, more just more relaxed. A lot of them now is for me, again, looking as it as a fan, it's completely different. Is is that sort of ruined football a little bit in regards to outside the game where people can maybe more of a social aspect? Yeah, I don't think it's changed at all. I, I just think it, it, it's um, what you just said, the attitude is the same. It's just the surroundings, the circumstances are different. 
So, you know, um, going back all those years ago to the people we talked about, there was that drinking culture where they'd go out and they'd go and play snooker and then go down to the pub and have, a, you know, 10 pints. And um, uh, Liverpool were more successful than Arsenal because they had their drinking session on the Tuesday and Arsenal had their drinking session on the Thursday. Um, <laughs> But um, now it's, you know, VIP nightclubs in VIP sections and, and, and uh, £250 bottles of champagne and cocktails, isn't it? But it's, it's basically the same principle. You know, the young boys want to have a nice time, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and invariably we see this because of social media. They get caught out having a nice time. We see exactly what they're up to. Mm-hmm. And it's probably no different. And I'm sure it was no different because I was there then. It's no different to what it was before. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing difference is no one's got a cat no one didn't have a camera sort of years ago did they they didn't sort of uh i could record it i'm unbelievable but um <laughs> you know those days uh there, there was a trust with, with the uh, there was a small group of uh us guys you know senior football writers these days is a you know mushrooming media with all sorts of people going along news reporters feature writers social media writers footballers you know twitter um, campaign editors and all this sort of stuff you know it, it's just so many people you can't really know who's doing what to whom mm. but in those days you know exactly and, and, and the tales we could tell but never did were probably better than any stories we ever wrote in the past yeah. but the problem they got now is they can't escape from the smartphone and social media and, and uh, it, it's harder for them not to be discovered um so, but they're all the same as before. They're all young boys, you know, super fit, you know, high on adrenaline with results. They're going to enjoy themselves. Harry, the last book I want to talk about today, where next year would be quite incredibly actually, would be the 10 year anniversary of Chelsea winning the European Cup in Munich. And you brought a book out called The Roman Conquest Chelsea Kings of Europe 2012. It's a story of Chelsea in the Champions League. Again, I believe it is still available out there. So if you do want to find the book, I do urge Chelsea supporters to find it. You, not sure, It's not completely out there on Amazon, but there, there is available on, on decent uh, bookstores. But one aspect, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, Harry, was one aspect of your fantastic books are the stories that come out of them that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. And in my opinion, it gets your mind thinking and visualising while you're reading it that you're actually there. And one of the sort of examples I have was when you sort of discussed quite early on in the book about Didier Drogba and the Champions League trophy with, uh, and I quote, you know, Drogba talked to the trophy, it was almost like a religious experience. Now, with the, obviously the book itself, I just want to sort of ask about the book. How did the concept of this this particular book initially come into fruition? Well, uh, I think it's because um, Roberto Di Matteo, I would consider a very dear friend of mine. Hmm. You know, um, when we lived in Chelsea, my wife's a journalist, my wife and I uh, would f- frequent his restaurants. He had first one in Hollywood Road, and he went there many times, and then he took over San Frediano's uh, in the Fulham Road, and we went there as well. It wasn't as successful, I don't think, as, as his first one, more of a 
all of Relax Pizza Bar where all the players used to go and um, he invited me to the opening um, and I was there with, you know, Frank LaBeouf and a few, a few of the guys and, um, you know, we got on very well, got on very well with Frank in particular uh, and went out socialising with them, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it wasn't materially, they knew, they trusted me, it wasn't going to go in the, in the mirror of the papers at the time, but it, it made for good material for a book. Mm. And, and hence you'll find that kind of unpublished material, uh, first-hand kind of recollections that are perfect to put in the book. For me, the, the, the book fascinates me because, as you say, it's, it's got sort of little snippets in there about obviously the build-up and uh, quite a bit of the behind-the-scenes issues initially when AVB took over. One of the bits in the book that fascinated me was with Andre villas Barros, which you know is in the news now with uh, you know with him being suspended at Marseille. Um, at the time, Nicolas Anelka and Alex, who two years previous won the league with Chelsea and were quite big players for Chelsea at the time, they weren't just banished in the reserves, but they weren't allowed to park their cars in the first team car park. That sort of astounded me a little bit, you know, with a manager who, with all due respect, was quite inexperienced at the time, treating these big, big name players like that. He certainly, AVB certainly made his mark during that sort of tenure. Do you feel that, again, with looking back with him then to what he's doing now, has he changed at all? Doesn't seem to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I just think that the, the, the problem with football now it, 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 it is that everything is acceptable if you're a winner. So if you're banishing the, the big names wherever you want to banish them to the reserves, and you say, well, if you're in the reserves, you go park in the reserve car park. But, well, that's, that's fine, you know, uh, if that method works. If it doesn't work, you're a complete idiot then, aren't you, to, to take that kind of attitude and alienating you don't just alienate those two players, you alienate their mates. Yeah. Whoever they're friendly with in the dressing room, you know, they're going to be moaning to, and they're, they're going to be moaning to someone else. It, it, it creates a bad atmosphere. Not if you're winning, though. You just turn around and say, I don't care what, what, you, what you think about your mate, you're winning. You're getting your win bonus, you're getting your uh, bonus for winning the trophies, and you're getting your medals. Simple as that. I looked at the, obviously, again, I've read the book and I was looking through the actual season review on DVD as well. And I've, looking back on AVB's time at Chelsea, do you think that that sort of particular period has damaged his career from that point? Because he hasn't really sort of done great since, has he? I had that spell at Tottenham for, for a little bit and then, as, similar to Frank, he spent all, the, all that money after Gareth Bale went didn't work out and then he left and then since then he hasn't sort of done particularly great again in your opinion based on what we've seen since then did AVB's time at Chelsea damage his career overall well it should have done but doesn't seem to have done Mm. he seems to have got quite a few you know lucrative assignments since then uh, with very similar results Mm. so um it's it's interesting, you know. He, he he has a fascinating CV. You know, he's managed so many clubs in so many different countries that he's got vast experience because he he obviously was managing in English football very young age. 
Mm-hmm. So um, if you're looking for an experienced coach, people are, you know, they, they have him under consideration. Mm. Um, but some of his methods and, and what he gets up to, uh, you've got to think, well, it's, it's a bit of a risk. Mm. Uh, mm. But he does have vast experience and, and has had limited success, if we put it that way. When Andre Villas-Boas was sacked in March of 2012, because it was after West Brom away, we lost uh, the game. Whilst sort of compiling this book, did you ever think at that point that Chelsea were g- going to have the season, that, you know, the end of the season that they ended up having? Did you feel at that point, as, as a journalist, did you feel at that point, yeah, Chelsea could still do something? Or at that point, no, this is going to be a complete write-off? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that, but it, it's almost like when um, Ruth Gullick was sacked and Luca, uh, only after a handful of games, and Luca Vialli comes in and you think, good grief, you know, they've just appointed someone straight out of the dressing room who's had a row with the manager. Um, how's that going to work? And, and at that particular point in time, he won more trophies than any other manager in their history yeah. at that time. Mm. So mm. you, you think... Oh, could, could something like that happen again? But you go, no, can't possibly. It couldn't possibly. Uh, and how that happened, I've no idea. Was you surprised that Di Matteo took over as interim charge? Was you expecting somebody else to come in? Yes. So really? It was just like, wow, look at that, fabulous. <laughs> it's one of the great football stories of all time, I think. Uh, yes. For, to take over that point and think any, any, you know, they could win the Champions League. I mean, no, who would have thought that? But uh, he did. Mm. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why he did. Um, he, he did carry the dressing room. They really, you know, you hear that expression, they're playing for the manager. I, I, I don't understand what the hell that means. You know, um, but I think in this particular case, there's, there, there's a reason to believe that they did play for the manager. They did put themselves out. Was there any names that, that you knew from the inside that were linked with the job while Di Matteo was in charge? Because at that point, Di Matteo was the interim manager. Was there any particular sort of stage where Chelsea were maybe looking at somebody else to come in that summer? Albeit, again, they didn't know that Chelsea were going to go on to win the European Cup. Did you sort of hear any inklings about they might go for somebody with more experience, as you say, because AVB, as you, you know, we've already established, didn't have the experience required. If you look back in the book, I'm sure I've catalogued, that they probably went for, for two or three. I'm sure they were, wouldn't they, done? Um, mm. so well, I know, I know it was mentioned about Guardiola, but apparently Guardiola said about he would rather do his first sabbatical because he, he, he just wanted a break from the game. And I know it said on the book about Laurent Blanc. It said about him, because well, I think he was the French national manager and he was still doing the European championships that were going to be in 2012. And I believe the last one was, ironically, Jose Mourinho. But he wanted to stay at Real Madrid. No, them particularly. It's not my memory. But, but I think we discussed this earlier, didn't we? Yes, you we know, mm-hmm. And tried to get Guardiola. And, and I think... I think they pulled out all the stops to try and get him, you know, and, and um, uh, he wasn't having it. But um, the feeling they were offering him, I think they've got this feeling they were prepared to offer him something like 
20 million pounds a year um, to sign for Chelsea. And, and that's going back an awful long time. That'd be almost like 40 million pounds a year in, in, in today's currency. Um, and, and it was an astonishing amount. Uh, I think even 10 million a year was an astonishing amount. But I think they started there and just went up to 20. They were just saying it was almost like name your price. Why do you think Guardiola never bit? Obviously, London's quite sort of a, a nice city to live in if, if you've got the money and sort of the stature of working for Chelsea. Why do you think, in your opinion, Guardiola never bit? Uh, because I think the guy is uh, highly intelligent. I think he's also very astute. And, you know... I don't think he needed to sign up for a project which included um, an owner that we used to 20, 30 years ago look to Spanish football and say, look at that maniac there hiring three or four coaches in one season. You know, who'd want to go and manage in Spain or or these clubs? Um, And I think he just said, I don't need it. You know, I, I need a project where I'm given time and, and consideration and bring in what I need to bring in and develop something over a period of time. Not, not to have the kind of pressure where I'm rushed into doing something there and then, which maybe I don't want to do. Maybe I don't want to sign this one or that one. Yeah. Uh, and I think he looked at the project at Chelsea and said, let me, I'll wait. I uh, do I need that money, even though it's an extraordinary amount of money? Um, and would he have survived at Chelsea? Probably not. Well, probably not, no. Probably not. Nobody, nobody has. Nobody <laughs> has since, no. <laughs> nobody has since. Um, he had the wise decision. And the part he's taken at Manchester City and the success he's had at Manchester I mean, the, the guy got it right. Mm, that's right. Harry, one last question before we sort of do let you go. In your opinion, do you believe we will ever see a team that looked down and out midway through the season sack the manager after eight months in charge, go on to win the European Cup and the FA Cup? Not going to happen, is it? And should never have happened. Really. <laughs> <laughs> was you there at Barcelona and Munich? But you, you was there. Well, where else would you be? <laughs> that must have been a surreal experience for you. you know, again, for someone who has followed Chelsea over the years to see Torres go past Valdez and score the equaliser... And then with Jogba scoring that winning penalty. Well, you are talking about someone who actually saw Man United win the treble by um, winning the, you know, Europe, the Champions League in, uh, in those extraordinary circumstances in which they did. Um, so, no, I, I think I've seen some extraordinary Champions League finals. And, no, we're not talking about Man United. Was that, unusual? was that unusual? Well, it was unusual, but I've seen some really unusual things going on. No, of course. Of course, nothing quite as unusual as that. No. The issue is obviously with Bayern, they were 1-0 up with, what, the 89th minute? And obviously United had them sort of, they had their two rare attacks, the two corners, and they obviously scored from, from them corners. Indeed. Harry, just again, say thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Um Hopefully we will sort of talk again to discuss your other books as well that obviously you have written and also that you have written quite recently. There's... The Boss book that you uh, that is out from last year, 
anybody that is interested in reading about Chelsea's past managers, I urge you to find the book. If you can find the books that we have discussed, if you can find them on websites, feel free to. They might cost a pretty penny, but they are worth it. Believe you me. Harry, again, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast and we'll hopefully speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye. Podcast Network.